So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Hello, Man fans. I'm Ollie Man, and this is what we have for you this month. I'm out of my depth here. I, I don't know how to best support these people in this terrible position, but we've got to because we need them on our side. Criminology, compassion and confusion. When there's a sudden violent death, how do police help the victims' families? Plus... Because they've consumed things like online porn, it feels very natural. Alex Fox writes the rules of engagement for explicit video and Ollie Peart has a manicure. It's all to come in this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters, and uh, something is obviously stirring in Toronto, Canada, uh, because no sooner had I appointed Ramanuj to be our ambassador for Ajax, which is a suburb of Toronto last month, uh, than I received the following email from Anya in Toronto, who says, Ollie, I've been listening to The Modern Man for a couple of years and have been meaning to buy you a bear for a while. Uh, that is a typo. She means beer. Uh, better late than never, so please accept a few rounds on me, as yours is my favourite podcast. Thank you, Anya. Uh, I checked, though, and you don't seem to have a ambassador for Toronto itself. May I apply for the position? I've been telling friends about the modern man for a while anyway. I might as well do it in an official capacity. Uh, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a good offer, Anya. I just felt, on receiving the email, that it would be a bit unfair, really, given the diaspora of man fans around the world. It would be a bit unfair to have two consecutive months of ambassadorships handed out in the same district. Um, but as I was mulling that over, look what else dropped in my inbox. Only an email from Grant Oyston in Toronto, uh, who says, Hi Ollie, it looks like you may not have a ambassador for Toronto yet. What is going on? Uh, I've just bought you some beers, and I'd love to be considered. I've enjoyed the show for many years now, living in India, Spain, and now back in my hometown, Toronto. So look, people of Toronto... Calm down. Uh, I am thrilled that we appear to have traction in your city for whatever reason. I'd love to know how this happens. Uh, <laughs> it's useful information if we ever do a live tour. Uh, but sorry, no. I mean, at the end of the show, it's everyone's favourite bit, the final 30 seconds, you will find out who's going to be ambassador, where in the world they are, but it won't be Toronto, I'm afraid. Um, and equally, apologies to David Hutchinson, who also wrote in, uh, saying, Ollie, I would like to nominate my amazing boyfriend, Ethan, to be ambassador of his hometown of Bolton, Lancashire. Uh, Ethan nominated me, ambassador of Queensferry, last year and has diligently been paying you beer money in my name but from his bank account ever since. I would also like to send some monthly beer money your way to help support your amazing podcast. Uh, there is nothing Ethan and I enjoy more than a long road trip together listening to you on the way to some far-off National Trust property. 
Uh, you really painted a picture with words there, David. Um, and if ever you make it down to George Bernard Shaw's house in Wellin, let me know. It's just a 27-minute drive from me and I've never been. Uh, but I cannot make you man ambassador because if you were listening, if you were truly a man fan and you listened to the end of each show, uh, you would know the man ambassador in our September edition was Jake from Bolton. So Bolton is taken. So can, can everyone just check the map on the website and see whether the ambassadorship is taken before you write in because you're, you're causing great anxiety in me. Anyway, before we uh, get on with the the show at hand, uh, may I thank our sponsors, Beer52.com. They are the world's most popular craft beer club, and they are offering you eight free beers and a magazine and a snack just for being a man fan. It genuinely is worth taking out this free trial. Beers delivered to your house, which are delicious. Uh, They've been sending me IPAs recently from uh, the Garden Brewery, which is in Croatia, Uh, I saved one over from the summer, which I opened last night. So good. Citrus, melon, tropical notes, uh, and only 3.4% alcohol as well. You know, craft beer does not always have to be high alcohol content. It's great they include a spread of low alcohol ones too. And if you like stouts, you can choose to have those if you want. Uh, Go to beer52.com slash modern to claim your free case. That is the word beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash modern links in the show notes Uh, right on this month's episode you will learn what happens in the golden hour you'll learn what fries stands for f-r-i-e-s in alex foxworld and you'll learn about a very creative use for a two pound sheet of water transfer paper from amazon let's go Time for the zeitgeist, your trends tested with Dorset's answer to a question very few people are asking. Ollie Peart. How are you, Ollie? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I'm OK. You've you just told me you've been rearranging your house. Yeah, I've got a lot of spare time on my hands these days. I was walking around the house the other day, I had this hoodie on, and every time I walk past this chair in my dining room, mm. it snags on that chair, and I get wound up, no end. So I've been implementing my own bespoke version of feng shui i spent quite a lot of time yesterday i'm I'm genuinely about three hours yesterday rearranging my lounge trying to sort of like figure out the best places for all of these different things then pip came downstairs my other half she came downstairs and she said i don't like where that chair is (laughs) and i just you know i sometimes feel guilty ollie that uh we pose you these challenges that take up quite a lot of your time sometimes days Mm. I don't feel so guilty now I know how you're feeling. <laughs> I think, if anything, we're rescuing you. Uh, anyway, last month we posed you a challenge from Man Fan John in Reading who wanted you to look into the trend for manicures, men getting their nails done. Uh, it's something that he likes uh, having done and he wanted you to discover why it's happening and create your own look. The thing is, when, when John set that challenge, I was a bit like, is it a thing? I mean, the fact that he's painting his nails at home in his own, yeah, fine, okay, but it doesn't mean it's a thing. Oh, no, I've seen the manicure thing around. I have. I've read pieces in GQ and Esquire. Yeah, but that doesn't mean anything. That's just that's just filling column inches. They've got to print a magazine, Ollie. But then I stumbled across uh, an Instagram account called Boys in Polish, and it's run by this girl called Jess Young, who's a nail artist. And she just does these guys' nails and takes their photo and tells their story, because they typically come from a background that's pretty difficult or challenging is it a very particular crush on a set i mean the, the use of the word boys just sort of suggests it's a bit like sort of men holding kittens it feels like one of those internet things the the reason that she started it is because she wanted to tackle toxic masculinity 
men don't tend to have an outlet for their any kind of issue that they have. They might turn to something that's destructive. And her point with sort of having their nails done or getting their nails done, something that she sort of found when she paints women's nails, is that it's an opportunity for people to talk, you know, a bit of a kind of therapy. So it's a spin on the barbershop idea, basically. Yes, but more so than that, it's self-love. It's looking at your at yourself and going, I'm just going to do this for me. Can we just get around to talking about, because I can't really sit here any longer just behaving normally without talking about this, why you asked me to paint my own nails last night, because I'm sitting here with painted nails right now. Yeah, well, I thought it'd be nice for Ollie Mann to have this experience. I want to know how he feels doing it. So that's why I insisted. Mm. You did. You called me last night at 9pm and insisted that my wife painted my nails. It was the novelty of the time of the call, I think. I mean, usually a call at that time of night is like, your grandma's in hospital, you know, yeah. but obviously it was, it was kind of pleasant. <laughs> Get your nails painted. I was like, all right, fine, fair enough. I mean, I'm asking you to do it. I can only do it myself. So I did get my wife to paint my nails. Uh, she's got a big box of nail varnish to choose colours from. I did not know where to start, really, because I've never thought what colour would I want, but I, I thought glittery, sparkly was probably wrong, so I went for a block colour. What colour did you go for? Rimmel Salon Pro with Lycra in uh, ruby red. I would say like a dark blood red. Oh, look at them. I think I look like Nosferatu. That's very feminine, isn't it? See, I have quite feminine hands anyway, you which do. is a reason that I think even if nail art really caught on, I probably wouldn't accentuate that. Mm. Um, if you want a visual reference, people, if you can't find a Google image picture of my hands... Uh, if you just uh, search for the uh, poet John Donne, uh, I'm a hand alike for him. Uh, we've got the same, the same, same hands. If you find a portrait of him, how do you know this? <laughs> I just know. <laughs> that is weird. I found a few things interesting about it. One was I was surprised how long you have to leave it after you've painted them. Like this whole business about like you know calming down, relaxing, and all of this. Yes, but then you've, you're very conscious. You can't then move your fingers. This is something obviously that most women listening to this will recognise. But I didn't realise like half an hour for it to dry. So I was like, I can't text. I can't hold the remote control, really. I can't really get a drink. Like, I use this hand for a lot of things. I mean, you can. You can. You just have but to be smudges. a bit more careful. I mean, we just have to be careful. So is it a thing then? What have you found? There's no, there's no like sort of set statistics on a website somebody's researched it and stuff but again I was chatting with Jess and she was saying like five years ago she worked in a a salon and she'd been there for five years and over that five years she was in that salon she saw three guys in five years right so not many she's got her own salon now and um, she'll see three to four guys a month so it's not huge but it's definitely growing Um, Mm. but the industry's massive I think like globally a year it's like seven billion dollars not in male no, 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 no. Just, just, just the total sort of yeah. nail. Don't dragon stand me, Ollie. No, no. <laughs> I want to know yeah. what the size of the opportunity is. Did you know there are seven billion potential customers for this product in Europe? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to flog it. I mean, but you say that. I mean, Chanel just recently have launched uh, two colours for men. Just one's a neutral one, the other one's black. But I, at the moment, because it's so early. I can't work out if they're just doing it as a little bit of a publicity thing. You know, they've still got, like, men mascara. It's going to get them column inches. Whether or not people are actually buying this stuff, I mean, it's 30 quid for a little tiny little pot of the stuff. So aside from celebrities who have a bit of money and want to make a statement, I'm not sure who's buying it. What what colour did you choose then? I was interested in the in the nail art stuff, the decals, they're called. And these are basically, like, transfers for your nails. So I bought some 
water transfer paper from Amazon. It was a couple of quid. I bought a couple of really cheap nail polishes from Amazon. Just a top coat and bottom coat, like a primer. Uh, and then a, I bought like a grey one. I'm quite excited by what you did with this because, I mean, we all remember when you wrapped your car. Yeah, I mean, that was <laughs> exactly. art on wheels. Yeah, similar premise. It, I'll tell you what it's like. You remember? Do you remember as a kid you used to get those like water transfer uh, tattoos? that used to yeah. last like 30 minutes. It's basically that. It's the same kind of stuff. But what you do is you, you order this paper and then you can print your own ones. And then you have to... I made this mistake. You have to then seal the ink using clear varnish, like a spray-on clear varnish, because if you don't do that, you put it on your finger and the ink just runs off and you've got no design in your finger and it makes a complete mess. Um, you cut these things out, put the, you put a polish on, and then you just put them onto your nail and then you put some polish over the top and then you've got a design. So what what design though? Are you talking goth? Are you talking magic faraway tree? I've got four different designs on right now on my fingers. Would you like to see? I would <laughs> like to see. You've been concealing your fingers the whole way through this conversation. I have. Let's see. I have. I'll start with these two because it means I'm actually just swearing at you, which is quite nice. Here we go. Can you see those? <laughs> wow. That's like monochromatic, almost art deco style cubism on your fingers. Wow, I was going to describe it as lines, so that's good. You've made it sound much. <laughs> you've made it sound much. It looks better. like it looks like cover art by The Strokes. Y- yeah, I like those. You know, I was ready to either say, "Well, you've done a really good job creatively," mm. or laugh. But actually, that's neither. That's just kind of, in the nicest way, that's kind of inconsequential. Like, actually, I think if I did see you in person, if we met and you had that on, I wouldn't ask you about it. I would note it, but I wouldn't think it was that weird actually it's interesting because the boys in polish a lot of the guys on there so some of the stuff they'll have it's not like they won't have like these massive manicures like some women would do with big designs and glitz on i mean some people will but they might just have their little finger done you know it's a really subtle little this is just my little little trinket on my nail for you (laughs) or you could have something like this on this finger ollie lightning strike what do you think do you like that Uh, well do i like that you know, if you were a solicitor, it would be a bit weird if you had that in a business meeting, wouldn't it? That's the thing. Whereas probably the black and white you'd get away with more. That's yeah. a bit spikier. Okay, well, how about this as a solicitor? Right, that looks on webcam just to be like a navy blue. Yeah, it's, it's, apparently it's uh, girl grey. And then on my thumb, I've got a special one for you. You ready? Ah, it's an Ollie Man um, avatar from your video game. Yeah. It's, that's uh, niche. It, yeah, that's very niche. I've had that on for like three days now, you know. Okay, and how do you feel out in the real world? I mean, obviously lockdown's happening at the moment and, you know, you don't have any kids to drop off at school gates. Hmm. But if you were going about your business normally, if you were going to work, if you were on a bus, would you feel confident knowing that people in Dorset, where men don't have nail art, would be looking at those nails? Well, funny you should say that. I uh, just before lockdown, uh, I went over next door, my next door neighbour, just to help her out because she's uh, she had a dripping tap. So I thought I'd give her a hand. That's nice, isn't it? Isn't that nice of me, Ollie? So there I was, feeling, you know, proper masculine. Had all my tools yes. out. I was like, yeah, don't worry, I'll help you. And then I realised <laughs> yeah. as I was doing it that I had my, <laughs> all my nails done, <laughs> yeah. painted, and uh, and I was a little bit self conscious. She didn't mention it at all. I don't know if she didn't no. notice or, or whatever. Okay, so let's say that there was interest in your look. Uh, where would you actually be able to inspire others to do it? Like, is there a kind of Instagram for nails? I suppose it's, a, it's an online marketplace. It's, it's an app called Beauty Stack. And, Beauty Stack. Uh, Beauty Stack, yeah. And basically, you can, as as a as somebody that's does whatever, any kind of beauty treatment, like it could be hair or, I don't know, makeup or 
nails or whatever and you can list on there and then people can basically just flick through it if they see what something that they like then they can uh, book an appointment with you and then they can you can sort of get that artwork done but that means me doing it to somebody else it's not like you know i'm not like selling my designs in that way do you know what i mean somebody would have to come to me and i would have to do it to them and you haven't felt confident enough with your skills yet as a nail technician to offer your service no, because I mean, there's loads of stuff that I don't know about. I actually sent a picture of my nails to to Jess just to get some feedback from Boys in Polish. Yeah, she was like, "They're actually really good. I'm really impressed." And I said, "Yeah, but have you got any sort of, you know, how could I make them better?" And she goes, "Well, you're going to have to uh, look at some cuticle cutters and some. Uh, you're going to have to sort out your." And I was like, "I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I no idea." And there's actually quite a lot. That's why they're called nail technicians. There's a lot going on. And that's why you're not called an investigative journalist. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. No fucking idea. <laughs> Surely the inquisitive uh, reporter might have asked, what are you talking about? Tell me more. But anyway, okay, fine. No, just, well, you've done, you've done enough. A, you've, yeah. painted your, you've put a thunderbolt on your nail, done. I, I don't feel confident cutting somebody's cuticles in my head. That just would end up into a bloody mess. Instead, I've had an idea that people can access my designs if they so okay. desire and give it a back yeah. themselves so what i'm going to do is i've created like a a sheet of these different things right yeah. ollie peer exclusive designs and then you can print them out on your own water transfer paper and i'm gonna um put together a little a little sheet like a, an explainer of how you then do it the materials you're going to need the stuff you're going to need it. to buy and then you can download print off the pdf and you can just spend an evening sorting out your nails in Ollie Piat style. You know, you can use my designs or you can print out your own designs and just follow my methodology that I've used. Now, it, it, it does come with a caveat. Like, I don't know how good it's going to be. I don't know whether or not what I'm doing is right. If you end up getting any kind of, I don't know, uh, infection or <laughs> some kind of skin rash, that's not my fault, okay? You do it at your own risk. These are the T's and C's you never hear on QVC. So the question I always ask you is whether you think you might continue whatever trend you've been exploring. I do genuinely think, for like special occasions and stuff, like a wedding or Christmas or that kind of thing, I might do one or two of my nails with a design. Like, I think it could be quite a nice little thing and it's a talking point, especially if it's an event. Like, I, I quite like that. Well, Christmas is just around the corner, Ollie. Uh, and speaking of which, we have a, a kind of festively themed challenge for next month's episode for you. Oh, yeah, we're coming to Christmas. I didn't, oh God, I can't believe that. <laughs> it is from uh, Man Van Jackie in Brighton, who says, uh, I heard on the radio recently something that really shocked me, uh, and that is that one in five people in the UK say they're lonely, and one in seven say they have no friends at all. Uh, it's not a nice trend, but I feel it is worth Ollie exploring as to whether there's anything he can do to help change it. Uh, I thought it was a really nice idea. Um, we're not expecting you to actually change the national statistics. <laughs> <laughs> One in seven, really? That but, is, yeah. that's a lot, isn't it? That is, that's a surprise. What we thought would be fun in this year when serendipity has basically disappeared is for your challenge to be to see if you could link people up as friends. So effectively being like a dating agency, but without a dating or a sex component. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Because I haven't, I haven't been going out and about or in the office as much. I'd normally, you know, meet some new people, or you know, even through friends of friends. I haven't really had that since March. Exactly. So what we thought would be nice is to set you up 
with a survey, an online survey, that man fans listening to this right now can fill in. And then you, taking that data, will match together listeners and arrange for them to have some sort of digital meeting. I mean, it will be on WhatsApp or Zoom or whatever. And then we can hear back how they get on and whether you've actually managed to successfully introduce people who listen to this podcast. So I'm basically the algorithm to this service. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I suppose the, fir- the first thing, which makes my life a little bit easier, is everybody that signs up, presumably, likes the podcast. So they have that in common. There's a certain set of values and uh, curiosity about the world, I think, that comes with being a subscriber to this show. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully you will like to meet other people who also listen to this show. That's the idea. But then it's down to me to then look at the other criteria in that list. I mean, what kind of questions are in here? Do we know? What what, what were you asking? Well, that's up to you. I mean, let's brainstorm some now. So I've got a Survey Monkey uh, template here, which we're going to put on our website that people can fill out. Right. So we thought we'd ask people, what's your favourite film? What's your favourite food? Or could it be like, instead of like, what's your favourite food? Could it be like, do you like broccoli? And then... <laughs> That's very specific. No, but then if you like broccoli, you're likely yeah. to also like a Romanesco cabbage. Sure. <laughs> so then, yeah. and that's the basis for a friendship. I'm just is it? working this out. I mean, what in real life are you replicating there? Like people who bump into each other in the Romanesco cabbage aisle in Tesco. <laughs> there's a, look. There's no, there's no bad ideas, Ollie. Come sure, no yeah. bad ideas. Um, <laughs> If you could go anywhere on holiday right now, this second, where would it be? That's good. Because, you know, some people will say walking tour of South Wales and other people will say the Bahamas. And that will give you a good sense, won't it, of the kind of person you're talking about there. And then if someone says Magaluf, then you know that I can't pair them up with anyone. Uh, Okay, so if you're listening to this and you would like to make a friend, this is a genuine thing for our Christmas episode. If you would like to make a friend with someone else who is listening to the show right now... There's not much obligation on your part. You just need to fill in the form uh, and then Ollie will connect you with someone else we think you might like to have a chat to and then we will report back as to how it went next month. Head to our website now, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and there is a link to fill in the survey there. We've put the link in the show notes as well and make sure you tell Ollie a bit about yourself on the form as well. We'll keep a a little bit at the end where you can just fill in some stuff about yourself. I mean, I I don't want to tell you to promote your charity or organization at christmas time but you know it is the christmas episode maybe tell us about some good that you're doing at the moment we'd be happy to share that as well fill in the form and send it through to ollie so that he can match you up with a new mate not sex mate no playmate not sex playmate fun mate nothing sexual yeah well who knows i'm not saying it may develop any kind of way but that's not the intention i could do with some warming of the cockles especially yes that's the idea yeah yes i like no it's very good uh before we let you go ollie uh we should thank our sponsors support for the zeitgeist this month comes from manscaped yeah untrimmed pubes thing of the past ollie now are they? Wow, you've yeah. changed. Well, yeah. I mean, just last month you were like, well, yeah, I'd like to give it a go. <laughs> Have you just been every day? I've been chewing through my wiry <laughs> nether regions. And, and, it, and it literally is, but you know, it, you know it's got this no-nick technology thing? The Lawnmower 3.0. It is the pubic trimmer to end all discussions <laughs> below the waist grooming. Yeah, I didn't know that I needed no-nick technology, but now I do. And also, the little... LED light, the torch. I know, it's, it is genuinely useful, isn't it? It is a game changer. Uh, they have a uh, package set, which I arranged to be posted to your house, Ollie. Would you care to describe it to us? This is the Manscaped Perfect Package 3.0. Ball deodorant, 
There's yep. ball toner. It comes yep. with a, a, a newspaper, which I haven't read yet, <laughs> but I will. And, and, and a, uh, a really... There's been some serious world events. <laughs> I haven't got around to the ball trimming news yet. No. But no, I will. <laughs> I will read it. I will sit down and read that ball trimming news. And um, it comes with a really nice uh, wash bag, which actually yep. do you, I, I didn't know I needed. But I do need that. And the perfect package also comes with a pair of Manscaped boxes. Very, very silky. They're very nice. And you can get 20% off just for being a listener to The Modern Man and free shipping if you use the code MAN, that's M-A-N-N, at manscaped.com. Yeah, that's the international site, but the discount code also works uh, in the UK, in Canada, Australia and the USA. Uh, You just need to make sure that you click your country in the drop-down box. So for 20% off with free shipping... Go to manscaped.com and use the code M-A-N-N. Your balls will thank you. Uh, on which I thank you, Ollie Pitt. See you next time. Bye, Ollie. In a moment, you will meet ex-police officer Tom, uh, who has some fascinating stories from the front line of serious crime. Uh, but first, time for some music. And uh, in a break with tradition, uh, this song has actually recently been UK number one. Uh, we just choose the songs that we like each month, but it turns out this one is, is actually popular too. From Internet Money, featuring Don Tolliver, Gunner and Nav. This is our record of the month, Lemonade. Suicide door, brand new bag. College girls can in my rhymes. Rockstar life, so much money, I'll make you laugh. Hey, they hate you, can't miss what you never had. Hey, hey, off the juice, got me tripping. Got the coupe, walk around. Got some sixties in my bag. Lips sealed, ain't pillow talking on no rag. In my earlobe, got two carrots, VVS. Got a penthouse near Rodeo, off for stress. All this money when I grew up, I had nothing. Now, uh, we always love it when you suggest guests that we should interview, and this month's middle feature comes courtesy of Man Fan Steve, who wrote in and said, "Ollie, I've been a fan of your show for quite some time, and I think you should interview." Tom Simmons. Tom is a retired Met police officer and a recipient of the Queen's Police Medal. I've known him for over 10 years and he's one of my favourite people, a thoroughly lovely human being and he's had an incredibly interesting career. He's been a beat bobby, a detective, a family liaison officer, a frontline manager for the referrals team at SEOP, that's the Child Exploitation and Online Protection Centre, a behavioural analyst and a polygraph examiner. I think he is just the sort of person man fans would like to hear. Um, Well, the phrase that jumped out at us, believe it or not, was family liaison officer. Um, Because it's it's sort of a self-explanatory job title, isn't it? But it's not one that you regularly see dramatised or reported about. And I wanted to know, like, what do family liaison officers do? Why was that post created in the British police? And what basically are the challenges of liaising with families when they've been affected by very serious crime? Uh, And a warning... We're talking about very serious crime in this conversation you're about to hear, so we refer to terrorism and murder and child abuse, uh, dead bodies um, and trauma. Uh, It's the kind of content you'll be used to if you listen to a lot of true crime podcasts, but there are some grisly details here. Um, It's fascinating because Tom's career through the 90s pretty much tracks the transition of the Metropolitan Police from being a police force to a police service. When he joined the Met in 1983, things were very different. I was walking through Lewisham High Street and this old boy stopped me and he said, oh, I'm PC such, I used to be at Deptford Nick. 
and uh, and he he was an ex boxer, I think, as well, so a police officer who boxed, and um, and he started telling me what it was like. Is in those days you didn't you didn't have the radio, you just had your whistle, and it's often when you went to a police station, you would be sometimes confronted by some of the local people who would, who would tough you out. Hmm. And he said on one occasion, I just said to this guy, I'll take you back the round the back of the neck and had a fight. You know, just to prove that he would stand up to them. A number of people may have got to the police and never been in a fight. Mm. You know, they may... Fortunately, a lot of people may be playing sports like football or rugby where you're going to have those contact sports where you will get into scuffles and be able to stand up for yourself. But it's quite a thing when you first get punched on the nose. So for me, it wasn't too much a problem because coming from, from Lewisham and being at school in, at Clam Junction, you know, we did have those scuffles and fights. And so it wasn't too much of a shock when you get into a bit of a bundle. So what were your first interactions with the victims of crime like? Um, probably very, very functional, actually. You, you as a police officer, you're saying, these are the things you need to get, name, address, descriptions, age, height, what happened, where, you know, the, I think they call them the who, where, when, and how things. Right. So it's very, quite a functional interaction. But I suppose once you got into the more serious crime, then you started to realise things are actually quite difficult because you've got to try and meet the victim's needs. I was an AD, ADC, used to be the acting detective, but I was at Lewisham and a, a young couple had bought their first flat. Uh, she was working all the hours to make money. He was working all the hours at building. He'd come home one night and they just had a, a washing machine installed. He was really tired because he'd been working wrong hours and he wired the plug wrongly. So he put the washing machine in and, and was pushing it and put his hand on there, staying his still sink oh. and electrocuted himself. So you, you turn up as a... You know, at the time, what, what I've been 25 at the time, you turn up and you've got, um, you know, clearly the love of her life is dead. You've got the parents there all terribly distraught and you've got to try and manage that situation. And also in that situation, I guess, there's no suspicion of foul play. There's no suspect. No, no. But the police are still involved because it's because, happened. Because it will go to the coroner and the coroner will want to know. So, I mean, that one was fairly straightforward for me. It was a matter of calling, calling out. We, all we did in the end, I called out the LEB. Uh, you know, and they sent one of their engineers out and we just took off the plug and you could see it wrongly wired the plug. Were that family grateful that you were there to not, check up on things? Well, not particularly. And this, one of the issues there is that not, not recognising and not having faced, if you haven't come across bereavement before, you're not going to recognise what you're going to face. And the training was very limited. You need to go in, you need to check the body, take the details. Are there any suspicious circumstances? So... Mm. Sometimes you'd go to, I'd always call one as an officer going in and the family were just extremely angry at everything. As I walked through the door, one of the sons just punched a hole in the front wall. You know, his, his father's just died and I walked through a door and I said, what the fuck are you doing here? Yeah. And punches a hole in the wall and then you have to sort of explain, I'm really sorry, but this is sudden death. He wasn't being, um, he wasn't under the doctors for anything. So you've got someone who suddenly died, you need to go and check as to what's happened to this person and without any training where can you go wrong the thing is if you go into an address and there's someone has died suddenly what you don't want to happen because you're going to lose investigative time right is not to identify that there's suspicions because by the time there's been a post-mortem and the they've picked up or the coroner's picked up actually there is something amiss with this you've lost valuable valuable time in investigation they always say the key they call it the golden hour after an offense like murder or any serious assault, you're talking about the golden hour to get the inquiry underway, to get the best evidence you can. And if it's gone on for a while, you're starting to lose evidence. You've got to get in there and do your job. So with limited training then, when you went into those situations as a copper and you were the person that had to deal with the family and it had been a sudden death, yes. but you still had to check for anything suspicious, 
What did you tell yourself? I mean, you, I, I guess without training, you start coming up with your own rules, your own methodology. You do, and I th- yeah, and that's that's nothing. What happens is where there's where there's a vacuum in terms of experience. I mean, sometimes you would have been ta- you should have been taken by your tutor constables, but again, where, what was their training? So they'd have been going on what they thought was best. And I think one of the problems is, as I've experienced in, in policing, and it probably for all walks of life, if you go somewhere and are told this this is the person that's going to train you and know how to do something, you assume that's the right way of doing it, although it may not be. So you do you know, remember what you trained yourself into thinking? It would be, I'm just going to go in there, get this done as quickly as possible, and I'm going to do my job as well as I can, but get out as quickly because I've got that next call to go to. And thinking about the family and their needs, you know, you would try and deal with them as best you could. But it was very basic in terms of your support to them at that time. I guess it was seen as social services job, right? Not the police's job. Um, I'm, yeah, I suppose I'm not sure who they would go to. It's just, it was just one of those functional things that you didn't really know a great deal about. You went, you did your job. You then reported back. You had to do a little report saying this is what we found. It would then go to the coroner. At some point, obviously, they, they would have arranged for the body to be taken away. It may well go off to the mortuary for the post-mortem to take place so you'd been telling them all about that and trying to arrange for all that for them so yeah it was very very functional to be honest when did you first hear the term family liaison officer yeah that that would have been about 1998 and that was following the Stephen Lawrence inquiry how, how did family liaison come up there I mean obviously the Lawrence it, family had a lot of grievances didn't they? yeah I mean where it really came out was actually in the subsequent inquiry when they because the team what happened was I finished I did five years on a child protection team and what happened in the Stephen Lawrence inquiry remember they had those recommendations that fell out from it part of our unit's remit was to look at those recommendations and see how they could be implemented across the Met Mm -hmm. and by far as I recall by far the biggest number of recommendations referred to failures in family liaison that the Met needed to sort out that's interesting because the, the headline everyone remembers from the Stephen Lawrence inquiry is institutionally racist, right? That's yes. the thing that the Met had to deal with. Yes. But actually, it sounds like internally, this was also, if maybe not as big a priority as that, but it was obviously a big thing. Was, it was there a, had been errors in, in the way the family had been dealt with. It, it was a big thing. And I think what had happened, I think people were becoming more and more aware, you know, through media and everything else, of the fact that they should be treated in a different way. Up until the Stephen Lawrence inquiry, the feeling was, as a police running a murder inquiry, we will tell you as a family what you need to know when we think you need to know it. Yeah. Which is not really engaging with the family. It's just us telling you, us saying, well, we know what we're doing. We'll just tell you what you, we think you need to know. So that's not a good way to start. And I think with the, when you go back to the Stephen Lawrence inquiry, one of the issues was there as the family didn't feel that they were being engaged with and finding out what was going on and there had been some racial murders occur in that sort of Woolwich and Lewisham Woolwich area prior to this happening so they were very concerned and wanted to know one of the things that falls out from dealing with sudden and violent death is one of the I suppose one of the things that most families will tell you is they want information they want information 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 and if they can't get it it becomes very difficult for them and the Lawrence family weren't getting the information. And I think what happened then was the Lawrence family brought in a solicitor. I can't remember his name now. But the police were thinking, oh, God, they brought in a solicitor. Oh, it's almost like bringing the shutters down Yeah, for that flow of information to take place. And then in that particular case, I guess you have also the issue that the Lawrence family would have been finding stuff out from the papers or from the journalists camped on their front door before it, the police. Yeah, yeah, and just not engaging with the police at all and then, then seeing the police as an enemy rather than 
as someone who's going to try and help them find whoever killed and murdered their son. So in reaction to that, the Met creates the position of a family liaison officer for the first time. No, it, in fact, it, it, um, it, it had been sort of developing. The first sort of recognised sort of family liaison had ha- um, officers had happened down in Avon and Somerset. And what had happened there was a DCI's daughter had been killed by a drink driver. Okay. And I think he'd been appalled by the way or just the general lack of support given to families, his family as a police officer, following the death of his daughter. Well, that's so interesting. So he came into work the next day and said, we've got to get better on this. So he came in and sort of, they started looking at how they could better support families. We also hadn't met, there's another really interesting guy um, called Duncan McGarry, who was a DC on the same unit. And he was a big driver behind families. And then he'd been on a linked series of murders. And it was, I think they were called the towpath murders. It's where girls, a number of women had been murdered on a canal towpath. Horrendous murders. And I think he'd been quite affected by the trauma on the family and probably as a police officer you do feel sometimes when you go in those situations you're thinking I'm I'm out of my depth here I, I don't know how to best support these people in this terrible position but we've got to because we need them on our side. How did you become involved? So for me um, I'd been on a child protection team for five years and you're often facing families in really traumatic positions both victims and their families often the child protection teams at the time we dealt with into familiar abuse but we were also beginning to deal with the birth of the internet Hmm. and I can recall for example going to to a woman's house with images of her son or someone we believed to be her son who'd been sexually abused and tortured and you needed an ID I need an ID of that picture there's no way to to actually frame that no, there isn't. Ultimately, so you is go there? round there. I went round there with one of my colleagues, a lovely uh, uh, a DC, and she and we went round there and we're thinking, yeah. how is this going to go? It didn't go well at all. You know, you have to sit, you know, we were trying to sit the person down so they didn't fall down. And is this your, we need to make an idea, is this your son? Well, what's happened to him? Well, this is what's happened. She threw up, Yeah. you know, and then you're in a position, well, how do we, how do we support this person? How do we support them? It's just horrendous. So we didn't really know and understand enough about how to support families through this and what structures there are. You know, who can you put them in touch with? How can you support this family through this trauma? Fortunately, when we were dealing with the children, often they'd be supported by social services and uh, the NSPCC. But even that was traumatic because if you can imagine taking a young child who's been to court, you know, we would have done the interview on video, but you'd still be there waiting with the family for the verdict. Yeah. And often that verdict would be not guilty. When you knew and you believed and you believed the child, and well, in fact, still be in those cases, the suspect was guilty. Yeah. But we do have a very high burden of proof in this country, which is beyond reasonable doubt. And it's quite easy at times for the defence to throw mud and some of that mud will stick and the jury start to think, hmm, not sure here. So, so I had all that bubbling around in me and that duty of care then as well it's not just i mean i think some people think of it as a kind of nice to have because it's the human thing to do but actually from a preventing crime standpoint you know if someone's just been found not guilty you've you've got to you've got to stop the father going up to him and decking him haven't you and you've got to stop someone committing suicide you've got to stop all that stuff that might happen as a result of the family not being looked after oh absolutely it's very i mean i did have i did have a case and once um I, st- I still, you still look back at those cases and think, how did that happen with the jury? In one case, it was a, a, the mother had found a note under her daughter's bed of an uncle writing to apologising for abusing 
this girl. Mm. The mother was so upset, she destroyed the letter. So interviewed the child, really clear disclosure of abuse. We, I, I go around to the suspect's house. I actually covered the notepad and the old, I don't remember the old ESDA test, indented writing. Found the letter, found the copy of what he'd written. Right. So it goes off to Crown Court. And for some reason, the jury just didn't convict. And um, I remember standing there thinking, um, I've just put this family and this child, because it almost felt to me like I'm re-victimising the family. By them having to testify? Yeah, by them having to, because you're putting, even if it's on video, you're still dragging them through court, you're still making them think about this horrendous thing they've been through, yeah. and you're putting them through it. On, on the charts, there might be justice, and there wasn't. And I remember that that day, the actual defence barrister came out to me, and he said, I don't know how they found him not guilty. Wow. And I said, will you tell me? I said, I have fucking no idea. And you just look at the jury and you think, what were you thinking? Yeah. We tended to get a reasonably good conviction rate, but when you have a couple of those happened and you see the trauma, you, you have to ask yourself, am I doing the right thing here and putting these children through this? Is there a better way? I'm not, I'm not sure there is at the moment. In the Met at that time, you could go on attachment to various units. As a new unit, I'd contacted the unit and said, look, I'm really interested in what you're doing there. Um, can I come up on a, an attachment? And that's how I ended up on a team looking at family liaison. Okay, so, I mean, we're still living in the consequences of what you helped develop then. Yes, yep. What were the big changes? Some of the things that you'd, you'd think, well, that's really basic. I mean, but it's it's just, for example, knowing how to speak to people. I'll give you an example. You'll see, for example, on the telly where there's been a murder and the, and the the body's there or something or the body's in the mortuary and the detective says very kindly to the person, I don't think you ought to see that. It's for your own good. Don't go. Don't go. It won't do you any good to see the body. Well, actually, that's not our decision to make. And the mm. learning for us was and talking to families and, and the, the, the families of victims is they wanted to see the body. Right. I clearly remember a lady, her, her I think it was her mother was blown up near the skilling. There wasn't sadly a lot left of her mother. What the, what the police officers did right there was they, they managed to cover what was left, but they, they found her arm and so the daughter was able to hold her hand to say goodbye so she could say goodbye yeah there was another lady i think her her husband had been run over by an arctic so not not good but the officers there you know she said i i i just wanted to so i could say goodbye in my own mind i couldn't i wasn't convinced it was him i needed to go and say goodbye so that that was facilitated so so that came about as a result of talking to the victims, to the family, victims, yeah, which right. wasn't done before. No, and I think there was some research going on as well that's being tapped into because all this started a bit of a groundswell. So it's about talking to victims and saying, "Well, what are your needs? What is it we mm. can do better?" For example, like the victims' property, I think there was one one um, chap. I think he'd been killed in a terrorist incident, but his watch had been quite badly destroyed. Uh-huh. And the officer, thinking do the right thing, got the watch cleaned and repaired to hand back to the family. But the actual chap who was handed it back said, "Actually, I wanted it." as it was I just wanted it as it was because I remember seeing it on my dad yeah or, or, or I think maybe his brother or father whoever it was yeah so yeah so it was not not repaired so it's about so that first thing was about not making assumptions about what the victim's needs are it's about asking and that's one of the big things about family liaison is about asking and I mean another thing that's been going on in the Met Police and very publicly for the last 30 years is I guess around diversity to use the modern yeah. word for it but, I mean, basically what that comes down to in this situation is if you're a white police officer and you're going into a black family's home, that presents its own challenges, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. We had a thing called community advisory groups. There was a community advisory group 
and a lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender advisory group. And what that was was about getting people on board who may be critical of the police, but who were prepared to work with the police to make change. Because you get a lot of people who scream abuse at the police and say, this is wrong, that's wrong, but they wouldn't actually be prepared to work with us. So what happened in the end, say if you had a, a murder from a certain community, we might be able to call on someone from that community to support the family liaison officer. So the family officer could go to someone and say, what do we need to know about this community? What is it I need to know? Or what are the do's and don'ts? Yeah. One of the things that was really helpful in the early days was around the gay community. We made a, a, a training film in the end, and the, 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 the gay chap who spoke to us was uh, really, really helpful, but summed it up in a lot of ways because he had a very supportive and a really good relationship with his family liaison who'd supported him throughout this. When his partner was killed, he was living in his partner's flat and had done so for five years. He wasn't on the tenancy agreement and he wasn't married. So as soon as his partner was killed, he's likely to lose his home. He's right. he's out because if it had been a male and female partnership, and they, you know he would have kept in the flat, but no, he's going. The next thing that happened was when the body had been taken away to the coroners, the coroners would only release, release the body to the family, not to him, although he'd been living with this guy for five years. So again, he's excluded. The funeral was um, up north, and when they had the funeral, he was excluded from the planning and everything else, almost if the family didn't want to acknowledge that he, this was his partner's relationship. And he, he said to me at one point, they they read out the list of names of people that were important to the deceased, and he was like bottom of the list. Well, yeah. And this is his. This is the person that he lived and loved. You know. So you think that person coming in contact with the police? Often the police were seen as part of that problem. But again, how do you help someone through those issues? It's, it's not well, the police's it, job to say, well, they're going to make space for you at the funeral, is it? No, but I think it's about having an understanding of that and supporting them through that process and trying to help them work through it. So a lot of work was done with the coroners about perhaps trying to work with, well, can the body be, you know, who, who is the body going to release to? How can, we, how can we make this better? I think things have changed even on the housing things now. If someone's been living for, with someone for a period of time, they won't necessarily lose their, their, their right to stay in that house. So things have changed. But I think if you don't know those things and you go in and you're not really understanding, it, it can be quite quite tricky. And I suppose just basic things about those kind of religious uh, traditions as well. So Jewish and Muslim families want to bury the body quickly, don't they? Irish yes. families want to view it in the house and all this sort of thing. Language was another issue. It was, um, I think it was southwest London. It was a Korean family and the father had been beaten to death and the first officer on the scene was on his PR desperately calling for help. And you do, you call up and say, you know, MP, MP, I need an ambulance, please, X, Y, Z, there's been a sort. This man's had a really good kicking. And of course, the family heard that, didn't really understand the quote, cruel nature of what good kicking meant. It didn't mean a good, that yeah. it was good. It just meant he'd had a bad one. But they picked that up on as a, a thing that caused them an instant problem. This police officer, obviously, he thinks he's had a good kicking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's so literally thoughtlessness, showed, isn't it? But it plays into that relationship between it's different communities. And, really. and again, officers are under stress. You yeah. know, and you, you try, I've done it, I've said things, thought, why, you know, really embarrassing things I've said, you know. Go on, uh, what's the one that haunts you? The one that haunts me is, well, it's a, a terrible story, really. And it, it goes back into that the use of language is really important because one of the things we were picking up on then, as had the detectives and family liaison officers got trained in how to deal with families, the problem was at the front line. So the first officers on scene. So we we did a um, we went round to see a number of victims' families about their experience from the, across the community, from diverse you know whites, from the Bain community. And there was one poor lady who um, the murder was um, 
shocking really she'd she'd gone her daughter had just broken up with her her boyfriend and then the mum had popped into to town to, to go shopping when she gets back her daughter's lying on the front doorstep with her head more or less blown off being shot off shot in the face so the mother is cuddling the the victim when the police turn up and the first dc again a lot of this will be shock and going into that functional rote more or less sort of said um well, you've, you've 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 got to let her go. You're corrupt in the crime scene. At which point, at which point, I think the ambulance person nearly attacked them. <laughs> but a whole host of other things went wrong after that. The police trooped in the house and left bloody foot stains all over the carpet. A part of the post mortem, they'd taken the daughter's jewellery. They then couldn't find the jewellery. And, and you said it'd be about things not to do. What happened to this lady as well? One of the things you, you shouldn't do. The, the police officer at the time had said to her, "You know, it's terrible. We're going to get this. Get the guy who's done this. Any time, day or night." Give us a call and we'll be there for you. Okay, now that doesn't sound like an error. What's wrong with that? Well, the woman phoned up at three in the morning because something had popped into her mind that she needed to know. And they weren't there? They weren't there. Yeah. Simple thing. So Simple just be thing. honest with the victims and say, there. you and, can and, get and, between and, nine and five. Okay, and that might be part of the training that we would give to family liaison officers to say, you know, you can't be there all the time. You need to think about how you're, you need your own, you know, occupation health-wise. You need to look after yourself. So you might need to say to them, look, if it's urgent, 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 it might be 999. Here's my mobile phone number. But do not, you know, if it's something that can wait till the morning, make a note of it and call me then. You know, put some put some structure and boundaries in place. Now, that's as much about the occupational health of the officers, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And also, I mean, I, I haven't answered your question actually about what was the worst thing I did. Oh, go on. But, but this um, poor lady's daughter was buried in a nearby cemetery as part of the film we we're going to feel it and I stupidly just said look we've, ne- we've nearly finished here we'll just shoot off down the cemetery right yeah just a simple comment like that I'm thinking oh shit well I just said mm. so it happens when you're even when you're speaking to people who've been through that trauma you're quite stressed because you're trying not to say the wrong thing and yet out it pops you know it's so easily to done so it's me saying you shouldn't say this you shouldn't do this and I, I've done it you know and you just you do it but um but there were a whole host of stuff. On the, another bit on the family liaison thing was often, just an example, family, office, family liaison officers were getting into these situations and obviously the families were relying on them because they're the there's they're support for them. And often in the early days of a, after a sudden or violent death, the need is one for information. And, you know, you see about people needing counselling. Actually, that may come in at a later date. Sometimes it's the need is just to get them... Um, you know some supplies to keep them going yeah you know, that's you know that might be more important because they're so shocked and shell-shocked rather than counseling but just getting them supplies in so what happens then is there can be this relationship form between the family liaison officer and the family which sometimes the officers qu- quite like but actually they've got to be professional so they might they need to put in an exit strategy yeah so you should be thinking how how am i getting out of this i cannot keep you going around always be on call. No, because yeah. families were telling us one of the families told us that this guy, this cop used to come around and he was a really nice detective, really supportive. But every time he popped around for a cup of tea, it took us right back. To, wow. Yeah. You know, so you think, as a cop, I'm going to pop around You're a nice cup supportive. of tea. Yeah. I'm gonna, I'll pop around a nice cup of tea. With, actually, no, I'm... You're triggering them. I'm triggering them back. They can't escape from this. See, now that's a trope in sort of uh, cop dramas as well, isn't it? You know, the good cop is yeah. the one who does keep in touch with the family of the murder victim for and years afterwards. It, yeah, and sometimes that can happen. If, if it's the family contacting you, great, you know. But then again, sometimes you might need to say, you know, you're not going to be able to give them time. Depends what it is. You've got, to, you've got to play these things very carefully. Did you do any training on actually telling officers what to say when they are breaking the news? 
It, yeah, a lot of it was more about things. Some ways, it's not what not to say, but just have a think thought in the back of the head how they how they prepared themselves for going round. You know, we did hear stories in the past where someone had gone and knocked on the door, for example, and they didn't have a notepad, so they'd scribbled it on the back of a fag packet. You know, contact such and such, and popped it through the door. You know, so. And things like, you know, if you go into the house, it's just some simple things. You know, if it's someone's died, ask where to sit down. Because what you don't want to do, if it's someone's favourite chair and you plonk yourself down in their favourite chair, you know, think about the religious needs. We, I think in London there's over 300 cultures and religions, isn't there? So you can't, you can't know all the religious backgrounds for everybody. What you can do is ask and not assume. So what would you like me to do? What, what you know, how and actually speak to the family about you know observe their religious you know things if it's taken off the shoes when you go into the house well you may well have to do that you know just show that respect you know so you can get the family on side and support them it's also i mean that sense of skepticism about the police when they come into your house and you're going through a tragedy isn't completely unmotivated is it like people are tapping into the fact that the officer is there to look after you but also maybe investigating you or someone in your family yeah and and, and you know you can't hide it most most murders are connected to the family so first of all you've got to clear the grass from under your feet you need to start the investigation as close as possible sometimes when you haven't got the suspect immediately to try and work out rather than going out you've got to start working out and a lot of that comes down to victimology so finding out about the victim which you're going to get from the family and within that you might step to indication of an issue with the family you know whether it be it domestic violence or child sexual abuse you know if you're obviously there was a clip on telly last night of that guy who killed his he was on telly with the biggest family or something and then he killed five or six of them so those officers would have been looking at that family working out from the family to start thinking where what has gone on here so there are people that you went into their home put an arm around them got them a cup of tea said everything's going to be all right and then they ended up being your main suspect that could well be the case you know i think it was like that shannon matthews and the right the, the, the child that went missing and she was under the bed of her boyfriend wasn't she in the end so again you have to start working close and and moving out some of the things family liaison officers do. I always remember a guy it went into the local police station and said, I've murdered my wife. She's in a carpet, um, up, you know, rolled up upstairs in my bedroom. And um, I've just had my son's birthday party, so he's at home. And my daughter's away for the weekend and she's coming back tomorrow morning. So there you go, deal with that one. Yeah. You know, and those officers thinking, oh, God, we've got to, you know, th- you know then you're going to get social services on board, but make sure those children. So quite traumatic things to deal with so an officer's going to have to go around there they know there's going to be a child there you know what I mean so all these things the officers are thinking about how are we going to how are we going to deal with this in a sensitive manner yeah how do you deal with a child who's just lost a parent in an extreme yeah. circumstance what what is the first what's the guiding principle no it's very difficult isn't it and uh, we did some really good work with some of the I'm trying to think of the name of it now the Candle Project at St Christopher's Hospice so this again it's about when you look at these things there's generally somebody who knows isn't there and you know, and we we as police, we then looked at people who were used to dealing with childhood bereavement, which is the Candle Project. So looking at either children who've died or children who've had parents who've died and things like that. So going going to find the experts who can help you who've been dealing with it. So before that wouldn't necessarily have happened if you don't have a unit or you don't have a, you know, you, you talked about family liaison or calling it family liaison. Well, that means it becomes a, a discipline in its own right, and then you can start looking at what are the support functions, what can we do to support that, who do we need to speak to. What's the research? So all that starts to come in. So another scenario I know I know family liaison officers have faced is when there's been, say, a, a terrorist incident or a mass, you know, a number of people killed fatalities. 
often they'll be looking to go back to the family to get DNA, particularly in things like the, the, when the Twin Towers came down. You'll be looking at body parts, so you're looking to try and identify bits of bodies, and you're only going to do that through DNA identification. So certainly I know officers, one officer certainly went into a house and was sort of said to the mum and dad, you know, have you got some hairbrushes or whatever it is, and I need to take your DNA as well. Dad popped out to Lou, and I think it was either mum or the dad, well, one of them without, said to the officer, he or she isn't the father. Hmm. Or, the, you know, he isn't the father. And that's going to come back on DNA. So you've now given the family days officer another thorny problem yeah. to deal with. That he's going to, there's going to be a bit, this is going to create even more turbulence within the family. And you mentioned uh, 9-11. I yeah. mean, obviously that was in the States, but it involved a lot of British victims. So you were involved with that too, weren't you? Yes. What, what happened was once it became clear there were a large number of British casualties, we knew that whenever there, anything like this happens, families want to go not to where the person was killed, but to the place where that person was last alive. So we knew families would start to make their way to New York. What was the need for them to go to New York? Did that come from the families themselves? Yeah, because they wanted to go. This is the, you know, especially if they haven't been found, there's always that, is, is my, is for example, my partner or my, my brother, family member, are they in hospital? Are they still alive? Yeah. The Americans had an amazing response. I think they had it called Pier 62. It was, if you walked in there, there was possibly anything that a victim's family might need. So they had dogs you could stroke. They had victims, survivors, and survivors' families from the Oklahoma bombing. Wow. So they could, if you could talk to someone who'd lost someone, they had... And that was all assembled, I mean, pretty quickly. Oh, God, yeah. They had, they had um, the uh, American Red Cross were there. They had lawyers there. The police were there, the FBI were there to take, you know, the uh, DNA samples. They'd then organise, you could then collect some flowers or a cuddly toy, and they'd then take you, the, the families, out to a boat, and they could then leave some flowers or something for their loved one actually at the site. Did that make you feel like there was still more work to be done here, though? Because, I mean, you've been working really hard to develop what's happening here, and then you go there, and that's so professionalised, isn't yeah, it, although, to animals well, I, to cuddle? Yeah, they, did, they, had, they had those things. What I don't think they have is family liaison in America that, under, to the same extent that we do. They've got some really good supportive organisations like Parents of Murdered Children out there, organisations, but the, the policing side of it wasn't the same as ours. And um, so that side of it, I think we, we probably do better on. What's the hardest part of the job? I mean, what's the really most difficult thing to do? I think I think it's really difficult to explain. I, I found it all hard. To be honest with you. I think. Um, no, but coming from you, that's really interesting yeah. because of the other very sensitive and difficult areas you've worked in, child protection, yeah, etc. Yeah, I think it, it. I think when you look at these, and most most police officers will tell you from their experience, and I think it's it's borne out by research as well, is that once there's been this sudden or traumatic death within a family. It's devastating for that family. And often those families don't survive. They break up or there's divorces, alcoholism, all sorts of things. And then you think about the effect on the sibling. And then you think about justice. Well, what is justice in those cases? Those families, there's the legal justice in terms of them getting an appropriate sentence. But is that justice for the damage and hurt that's been called for them? Yeah. They're not going to get their loved one back. They're not going to get the life they had before back. As a police officer investigating murder, I've seen a phrase sometimes it's the highest honour that you can bestow on a police officer is to investigate the death of another, which is quite true. You know, if you think about it, it is. But from that comes the fact that you, you know, you see on the telly where someone gets arrested for the murder, that's not the end of the story for the family, is it? It's, they're always going to have that pain, that hurt. How can you 
deal with that. So for me personally, I, I, that was one of the reasons I said, no, this is not for, for me anymore. I suppose you get vicarious trauma as well from, from dealing with, with it as well. Did you experience that? You, you do, you can't. I think you're doing all policing when people are unloading to and you're there Some you're there sometimes at those most difficult moments. And I'm sure that that traffic officer I spoke about, he, you know, having seen that young lady killed in such an awful way then having to go and break the news to her parents and then so he's dealing with the trauma of the scene and then dealing with the trauma of the parents and what happened was just at that time there was um an operation called operation or which came over from america which was the first massive child internet abuse case which had then been because there'd been a few errors in how it had been dealt with was picked up operationally by the national crime squad and they said well we're looking for uh, people to come on here who've whose role it's quite an innovative role because of the brand new team dealing with online crime which hadn't really been done before and because I was child protection I'd just done an innovative role in terms of family liaison there I seemed to fit the profile of what they wanted so I, I was on there for attachment um, that was in about 2002-2003 and then it's a completely different department and you're dealing with a completely different kind yep. of crime yep. but in a way it's a similar problem isn't it in that in that era turn of the century child abuse imagery online hadn't been dealt with before so it was an area that, that needed complete modernization it wasn't that was that was the going back into history of it was was one of the problems what happened was when the when the cases came in from america i'm trying to think how many the uk had i know the met had either between two and four thousand i think it was about eight or nine thousand cases from that one operation there had been some before but the met copped about two thousand suspects i mean it's a massive it was the biggest post-war operation the rest of the cases, I think there might have been 25,000 or so, I can't remember quite how many, were then split up and sent to each individual force. Most of those forces didn't have like a dedicated sexual intelligence unit or anything as such. So what was happening was this was basically a spreadsheet saying this person has purchased access to this website, Bosch, here you go. So say, for example, a force got 70 lines of data or 70 suspects. It would then go into an intelligence unit and they sat there and people thought, well, what do we what do we do with this? What does this really mean? Right. And one of the errors that happened was that on some of those lists were police officers within those forces. Right. So that was quite a traumatic moment. And uh, one of the things that happened was two young girls were murdered and the family, this is why... Holly and Jessica, those yeah, names have just come back to me. That's yeah. it. And, I mean, this is all public record. Yeah. This is where policing becomes really difficult. The guy who was there... The family's family liaison officer, he was on the list. He was the family liaison officer for them, for their families. families. And he was on that forces list of... Someone who's accessed child abuse imagery. Yeah. That was a very low moment, particularly on that team as we've gone through all that effort trying to support families and do this, and suddenly this individual pops up. Mm. And that got really tricky. And just to show the, the difficult nature of it, he'd actually formed a relationship with someone at the local CPS. So the case got totally messed up. So he wasn't prosecuted. It then got reinvestigated and he finally got convicted of perverting the course of justice, as did the lady from the CPS. So a really horrible, yeah. horrible uh, experience. You've been out of it for 20 years or so now, the family liaison stuff. Yeah. Do, do you think uh, things have progressed as you would have wanted? I would hope it... It has done. I'd, I'd hope that the support we give to victims and families, I say we, I'm not in the police anymore, but I'd hope the support we give has improved. Um, but you do continue to see issues arising in the press. 
but there are some from my perspective i saw some fantastic officers doing some fantastic things in really really difficult situations that most members of the public would think god how have they done that tom simmons and if you know someone who you think would make a great guest in that middle section of the show, then do drop us a line. Reach out via the feedback page of our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. And uh, yes, you are even allowed to nominate yourself. Uh, right, coming up next, the brave new world of video dating in the new normal of lockdown. Your sex questions with Alex Fox. After this. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Flirting, sex, love and relationships, these are a few of my favourite things and here to discuss them, it is Alex Fox. Hello Ollie, you've caught me on such a lovely day, I'm feeling very chirpy and chipper, it's as though someone has replaced the S key on my laptop with a whoopee cushion. Maybe you're so happy Alex because, I mean of course you'd be too bashful to mention this yourself, but I note from your social media presence, you've won an award! I really wondered what you were going to tell me that you'd noted from my social media presence then. (laughs) It could have gone either way. Um, Yes, yes, I have. Thank you for noticing. Congratulations. Yeah, I've been named uh, Best Sexual Health Ambassador of 2020 uh, in the Erotic Trade Only Awards. Um, I love that it's Best of 2020. I feel like the queen of the apocalypse. This particular award does mean a lot because it's voted for by, by my fellows, by other people in the industry. And this year for me um, has been quite a tumultuous one. Um, I, full disclosure, lost about about £30,000 of work within a fortnight when the pandemic first hit. So I had to flex my hustle muscle and and majorly change the way I was working because a lot of live events were cancelled. A lot of projects I was involved in uh, just had funding pulled from them. Um, And as fans of my social media will have observed, I've been making a lot more videos from my front room advising (laughs) on what to do with your front bum. So uh, I might might actually tell my neighbours that I've won this award because those poor people have had to put up with me just bleating incessantly about STIs, condoms and cum. (laughs) On behalf of all the man fans, Alex, it is richly deserved. Right, time for your questions of sex, brought to you by the condom people. Did you know, by the way, Ollie, that their warehouse is in Plymouth, famous for uh, weather navy train and now full of a different type of seaman? I didn't, but I suspect you were really asking that question rhetorically. Here's the question. (laughs) It's from a lady who wishes to remain anonymous who says, uh, Hi, Alex and Ollie and potentially the head teacher of my old school, who I heard mentioned a few episodes ago as someone who donates beer money. (laughs) The world is tiny. Uh, I've started dating a man I met through Tinder. We've been on about five dates across a seven-week period and we talk every day online. It's come to the point where we've started sexting and that was all going swimmingly until he sent me a video of him touching himself. Ah. We'd traded pictures prior to this event, but for some reason the video made me uncomfortable because it felt like a step too far. 
In real life, I'm really clear about what my sexual boundaries are and I ensure all my partners are aware of them and respect them. However, I feel like sexting is a totally different game. In real life, I know what I like and how far I'm prepared to go, but I don't know how to apply this to the online arena. Ooh, this is a timely one, isn't it? Online dating has been a thing for a long time now, um, but these days more folks than ever are doing it and exchanging pictures and videos or doing that kind of thing live over cam. Um, I mean, to the extent, in fact, that her distinction between so-called real life, as she puts it, and the likes of Tinder is really evaporating for most people, isn't it? I mean, as you were saying earlier, being at home and doing everything is real life for a lot of us this year. See, I think that's part of the problem here. That distinction has evaporated for some, but for other people, there is still a distance and to some extent a dissonance um, about conducting an online relationship. And those different attitudes towards online dating um, are causing some some mismatches and some missteps, which I believe to be the case here. Now, what's your take on, before we really get into the nitty gritty of this, Ollie, what's your take on this situation? Do you think that um, anyone is really in the wrong here? Or do you think that this is just um, a little bit of a miscommunication? I would err towards the latter, although obviously I don't know this bloke. It is in the natural progression of things, isn't it, to go from flirting to, I mean, she uses the word dating, I've started dating, to then move on to sexual things. It seems to me like it's likely that he has uh, misunderstood a cue to take things down below. And that actually, maybe, that cue would have been given two texts later, he just misunderstood it a little too early. Uh, I'm on, I, I take much the same opinion as you. I think we need to draw a distinction between people who knowingly um, send something like a dick pic or a video of themselves masturbating where they know that is likely to be unwelcome. For some people, the kink comes with the non-consent and that's absolutely unacceptable, but they get a thrill from shocking somebody or from trying to move things um, abjectly faster than is obviously okay. I don't think that's the case here. I think that this man has um, interpreted the exchange of photos as naturally wanting to progress to the exchange of moving pictures, of videos. And this really highlights how even when we are um, communicating digitally, we need to be really clear and explicit and forthright in communicating what we like and what we don't. Um, the problem here, though, is that for some people, this is such a new world that they're not going to quite know what they do like yet. And, and they might not know that they don't like something, as perhaps is the case here, until it happens. And also, frankly, I mean, you might like it with some people and not with others. I mean, that's the truth, isn't it? There are some people who you're only interested in because you're physically attracted to them initially. And then there are other people that, you know, she might be thinking about this, go, oh, he seems like a really nice guy, but I'm not sure I'm physically attracted to him. And that's not the person you want to see touching himself. I mean, it's nuanced on a case by case basis as well. Yeah, uh, and it's not just about the person or even the content. It's sometimes about timing as well. Um, I chatted to uh, Carolina R about this. Now, she's a pole dancer, but also an academic who focuses specifically on online abuse and online inequalities. And she pointed out to me that um, even if you are 
in, interested in receiving uh, a kinky video from somebody. If you're in the middle of like your hoovering or or having a, <laughs> having a work meeting or something, suddenly receiving a text from somebody saying, "Oh, I would love to nail you over your desk," or uh, or, or sending you uh, a graphic boomerang of them playing with their wang is not going to be welcome at that moment. So um, this all really comes back to. Um, asking for consent and the fact that consent is not a one and done thing. It's a continuous process of communication. And in real life, as she puts it, consent can be implied by action, i.e. would you like to come back to mine, right? But that that's harder to imply. It needs to be clearer, doesn't it, when the next action is to send a picture of your cock? Yeah, I think when we're communicating digitally, it's more important to perhaps literally spell things out. I'm feeling really horny. I'd like to send you a dirty picture. You know, it doesn't have to be spelled out in legal terms, does it? But just that would indicate there's a yes or no answer. Precisely. Simply asking somebody, uh, I'd love to send you a saucy video or saucy. how would you there feel you about... Go. Such a better feel... word than dirty. There I was, <laughs> shaming people for their lust. How about um, I'd love to send you a clip uh, of what I'm doing while I'm thinking about you right now. That gives somebody the option to say, actually, I think that's a little bit too much for me right now. Or uh, this isn't a good time or um, I'm um, I'm not ready to progress to that, that stage yet. Let's maybe check in in a few weeks. OK, but that does put the onus on the person sending the photo. She's the recipient of the photo. So does she have to have a conversation first where she says... By the way, um, when it comes to sexting, I'm not sure what my boundaries are. Please do ask me if you intend to send me anything. Um, the model that I find really helpful to keep in my head is called fries. Um, if ever I want to serve my milkshake to someone or anticipate them serving their milkshake to me, it's got to come with fries. The fries acronym stands for freely given. So um, if I'm entering into something or inviting someone else to do it with me, there has to be no pressure, no manipulation. Um, I need to know that they're sober enough to consent um, and they're not going to do something that they regret because they're out of their mind. It has to be reversible. They're allowed to change their mind. You can say, oh, yeah, let's try that. Uh, and then afterwards go, you know what? That wasn't my cup of tea. I'd rather not do that again. Or can we stop? I'm not enjoying this. It has to be informed. Um, when we're talking about quite a new digital world here for many people, that getting as much information as possible is that's going to be um, perhaps an area that needs additional attention. Um, it also needs to be enthusiastic. You want to be consenting to something because you're you're really interested in it. It excites you, not just something that you're you're kind of ambivalent about or doing doing because you feel like that's the done thing and then finally it needs to be specific saying yes I'd love to see a picture of somebody is not the same as saying to someone yes I'm, I'm consenting to videos as well now when uh, uh, full disclosure when I first read this letter um I did think you know, is is there such a difference between a still picture, a photograph uh, and a video? Why does this feel uh, like such a jump for this person? And I talked to quite a few folks and I think there is a real distinction. Um, for a start with a picture, you get the chance to pose it. It's easier to show what you want to and hide what you don't. Um, it all feels a little bit slower and a, and a bit more of a calm pace. Whereas a video actually seeing movement 
movement, hearing sound. Um, it, it, a lot of people perceive video to be a lot more graphic. It's also because it's a step further along, suggests a reciprocation, I would argue. They're sort of probably expecting you to return the favour, no? Uh, yeah, I'd agree with you. And just because you've said that you're happy to receive that doesn't mean that you are obligated to do the same in kind. Again, though, I would say that requires really clear and compassionate communication because I can imagine a scenario and I've heard about other people experiencing scenarios where they sent a video to somebody um, expecting that it would be an exchange and then felt ultra vulnerable when the person that they'd mailed that to decided that they didn't want to um, do the same themselves and they felt like there was uh, there was an inherent imbalance let's just talk about safety for a moment i think one of the reasons that some people perhaps do feel comfortable progressing quite speedily with erotic exchanges is because they don't carry some of the risks of real life sex stis obviously aren't a problem pregnancy isn't a problem um, and in some people's minds, because they've consumed things like online porn, um, it feels very natural to them to, 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 to send saucy material. Yeah, you're literally on the same device, aren't you? But on the flip side, of course, when you are exchanging images, that contains uh, inherent risks that are unique to that, that digital realm. Uh, and one of those is that the images may fall into the hands of somebody that you don't want to. Um, you can use encrypted apps like Wire or Signal or Telegram, which tend to be a little bit more cautious and careful with your data than someone somewhere like Facebook or Instagram. Um, and some of these apps have a self-destruct feature or a view once option. So you can send an image or a video and then it will disappear. However, there are still limits to how much protection that gives you. Um, it's still possible for these things to be hacked. It's possible for someone to take a screen grab or even to uh, to take a photo or a recording with another device, say using a laptop. It could also seem like an acceleration, couldn't it? I mean, she's basically wanting to pour cold water on this guy. <laughs> so if she says, let's hop off Tinder and on to Signal, that sort of suggests that she wants a more intimate conversation. We keep coming back to the idea of how clear communication is essential because, yes, you might infer from someone's suggestion that you take things off Tinder and on to, say, Snapchat, um, that they wanted to progress to more sexual discussion. But that's still an assumption. This is why using our words, spelling out our feelings is always a good thing in relationships, no matter the medium that we are using to conduct those relationships. Do you think, therefore, that actually some of the social media platforms and dating apps could uh, invent a technological solution for this. So rather like the kind of Facebook like thumbs up, you could actually send someone an emoji, which means, shall we send each other pictures? And you could respond using an icon that means yes or not yet. Some dating apps have attempted to be more responsible when it comes to things like safer sex uh, by doing things like uh, offering links to STI testing services or sexually transmitted infection um, information. Um, so they've, they've tried to take responsibility. But ultimately, I think um, it's it's best practiced and most empowering and most liberating and most healthy for every individual to, to learn how to negotiate consent for themselves, how to work out what their boundaries are, how to uh, talk about them and how to make sure that they're respected. Because that is always 
not only a useful thing, but an essential thing within any well-functioning relationship. So well, that's a shame. Whilst- I just thought I came up with a really good idea. <laughs> Well, there's also a danger in trying to fix things with technology when you're talking about human beings. Um, There have been uh, suggestions made before about apps where um, if you you use your fingerprint, for example, then you can sign a virtual contract saying you've given consent uh, for a particular sex act to take place. And um, all sorts of problems have been identified with those. For example, the fact that um, that doesn't uh, allow for consent to be reversible just because you've um, tapped somebody's phone to say that you're in the mood in a moment that doesn't account for the fact that you might actually change your mind which you have every right to do or god forbid it's possible to put somebody's um, finger on a phone and take their print whilst they are unconscious or if they're asleep so a lot of the attempts to totally take these issues away with technology have failed because it ultimately comes down to human beings to learn how to be decent with each other and proactively decent. Indeed. Uh, if you have a question of sex for a future edition of The Foxhole, head over to modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and click the feedback form. And all that is left is for us to thank our sponsors, the Condom People. I am delighted that the condompeople.com stock a brand of condoms called My Size. I believe that the condom people are one of the only ways that you can get hold of these condoms if you live stateside. What's so great about these condoms is that they are custom fitted. So they'll send you a, a little measuring tape. I think you can download it and print it yourself at home, actually. And it will uh, take account of both the girth and the length of your personal package give you a special code that's randomised so that somebody won't see the condoms on your bedside table and automatically know that your penis is uh, 3.3 inches long or whatnot. But it allows you to have pretty much the tailored tuxedo of contraception. Um, If you're somebody who's particularly uh, largely endowed or on the slimmer side, then these really can be a godsend in terms of comfort, performance and safety because the better a condom fits your bits, the better it's able to do its job so if you want to measure your cock and get the perfect fit condom then the condompeople.com is a great place to do that and we've got a discount code for you too yes we have everything on the site is 15 percent off when you use the code foxhole all one word f-o-x-h-o-l-e And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this month's Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new Manbassador. It is Catherine Gorman in, not Toronto, not Bolton, but Galveston, who says, Hi Ollie, I've just bought you a couple of beers. I would love to be considered Manbassador of Galveston, Texas, USA. Galveston is an island in the Gulf of Mexico, about an hour south of Houston. My day is always brightened when a new Modern Man appears in my podcast feed. I love the show, and I'm glad I've finally pitched in. Uh, Catherine, thank you. We are glad you've pitched in too. And I now pronounce you Manbassador of Galveston. It belongs to you. Congratulations. Uh, that's it. Our theme music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill. And we'll be back with our annual Christmas spectacular on December the 10th. See you then.
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.